There is a future beyond shell. It is necessary, overdue, and inevitable. In its place, we are building a clean, fair, and affordable energy democracy. Get ready. Oil and gas major shell has contributed significantly to the climate crisis. It has long impeded a just transition away from fossil fuels. But what are the pathways to a future beyond shell? If we are serious about putting a stop to the polluting colonial capitalist company, we need to take a good look at the options. Bankrupting, carbon pricing, suing, nationalizing. What can we achieve with these strategies? Welcome to the Future Beyond Shell podcast, in which we explore potential pathways to responsibly dismantle Shell as we know it. We are your hosts, Archina Ramanujan and Marisol Reindl. In today's episode, we will discuss the potential and risks carbon pricing holds in building a future beyond Shell. Carbon pricing and trading has come to dominate the debate on how to curb climate change. Its proponents spend the field from governments and corporations to parts of the white climate movement in the global north. Simply put, with carbon pricing, a price is put on carbon emissions, usually CO2, by either taxing its production or by creating an emission trading system. Such policies aim to make carbon pollution more expensive, to reduce demand and to eventually create incentives for companies to invest in renewable energy. Today, the EU Emissions Trading System, in short ETS, is the climate regulatory tool with the widest reach within the European Union. It manages the emissions of about 11,000 power stations and industrial plants across Europe, including those of Shell, that are responsible for 45% of the EU's CO2 emissions. Most recently, the EU has announced that it will expand its ETS in the upcoming years to meet its ambitions set out in the European Green New Deal, and it is expected that discussions around carbon pricing will form an integral part of the upcoming negotiations at the COP26 in Glasgow. Shell has consistently supported carbon emissions trading and in certain areas of the world, carbon taxes. Next to carbon capture and nature-based solutions, it promotes reliance on carbon markets as a core climate action strategy that is in line with their business goals. But how successful have these neoliberal tools really been in moving us towards an anti-colonial and anti-capitalist future? Can some of their inefficiencies be resolved by tweaking market rules? Or is the idea of carbon pricing based on an inherently flawed logic? Today we have with us Dr. Tamara Gilbertson. She is the Climate Change and Forest Policy Advisor at Indigenous Environmental Network, or IEN. She is also a longtime activist, researcher, and educator on the topic of carbon pricing. It's worth noting at the outset that Tamara and IEN have done a lot of amazing work to educate the public about the implications of carbon pricing, including publishing an education toolkit that we will link to in the show notes. Tamara, we're so excited to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Yeah, also a warm welcome uh, from my side, Tamara. I feel that we have a lot of grounds to cover today, so uh, maybe we can jump in uh, immediately with the first question. And of course, in this episode, we want to discuss a little bit more the pros and cons of carbon pricing. So maybe you can start off with explaining a little bit more what carbon pricing is. Yeah, you know, carbon pricing is really a mystery for many because it's so complex. Um, a lot of the language is filled with, with um, strange meanings of words and, and changing it. But really, when we, when we think about carbon pricing, we have to go back to the 1990s to really get a full picture of what we're talking about. And we can trace this back even to the Earth Summit. Um, of 1992 that was in Rio de Janeiro. So at the time in the 1990s, what was happening was, was, was economic development projects that had ramped up after World War II through Bretton Woods uh, institutions like the World Bank <clears throat> and, and different institutions had, had really um, promise to alleviate poverty through through development. But what was happening in the early 90s, and, and this was right after the, the Cold War ended, the Berlin Wall fell, was, was there was a, a sort of focus on um, environment and development, seeing that the development projects that were happening in the global south were actually causing a lot more harm than good. So the United Nations called for a conference on environment and development. This was, this was the Rio Earth Summit and came up with something called Agenda 21. And this was to address what they called then sustainable development and towards the 21st century. And the idea was to continue development projects, but somehow, you know, green them in a way. There was a lot of pushback. Um, and it, it ended up be looking like a lot more of the same. Um, and at the same time in, in Rio, the United Nations came up with two separate bodies. They recognized that the two sort of key issues around environment were climate change and biodiversity loss. So this is where the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change was really born. Um, the other body is the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity. But for the most part, you know, what we'll talk about when we talk about carbon pricing today and carbon trading was, is what's underneath the UNFCCC. So, you know, moving a little bit further ahead to 97, when the Kyoto Protocol was agreed upon, originally, the Kyoto Protocol was really just something that looked like the Montreal Protocol, whereby the parties or the countries involved wanted to reduce uh, greenhouse gases by a certain amount based on a certain year. So originally it was 5.2% based on 1990 levels. And the idea would be to reduce those emissions year upon year until, you know, parties reach that level and then come up with another, you know, another goal after that, much like the Montreal Protocol did for um, ozone that seemed to be quite effective or at that time was, was being more effective. But Al Gore um, was the vice president of the United States at the time. And he and, and the, the US 
delegation really pushed for what was called flexible mechanisms. And they argued that there was a sulfur trading program in California that was effective and that they wanted to implement this as, you know, to, to create carbon markets to buy and sell and trade per, you know, pollution permits between companies. And if they could do that, then the companies could, could reduce emissions by buying and selling and, and trading permits. So this is really where this was born. There was pushback. But at the beginning of the 2000s, the flexible mechanisms were adopted in Kyoto in two ways. One was cap and trade programs, or also called emissions trading systems, or ETSs, and the other was through carbon offsets. Um, and at this point, there was no mention of carbon pricing. It was all around carbon trading. And that's really the, the origin, or a very brief <laughs> overview of the origin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. I think it's, uh, yeah, these historical perspectives I always find uh, really interesting, but also very confronting to hear how long we've been discussing these things already. But yeah, you mentioned already um, that sort of two, the most common forms that carbon pricing is taking is on the one hand, carbon taxing, and you have carbon emissions trade. So um, could you elaborate a little bit further what these two uh, tools or mechanisms entail and maybe what the underlying uh, logic is. Cap and trade systems or emissions trading systems function basically like this. So a cap and trade system or an ETS is always underneath a government body to regulate it. So we call it, because they're regulated by a government, we call them compliance markets. So we can imagine that there are two different polluting entities. Let's say A is a Chevron oil refinery and B is a cement factory. And underneath the system, a government um, basically gives permits um, or allowances to these polluting entities um, to be able to pollute so much. And if they don't pollute, let's imagine the cement factory pollutes half is it what it normally would it can then take half you know those permits that it's given and trade that or sell that to the chevron oil refinery so chevron can pollute more um, than its capped amount so this is cap and trade the idea is then the permits get ratcheted down year on year um, and eventually there's less permits to use but but there's but this you know this is theory or or in theory, how it should work, is it's far more complex than that, of course, in, in reality. What we see, again, it's important to note that the price of those permits, you know, it's given a monetary value, and it the price then is on a market. It sits on, you know, like a, like a stock market, which is subject to boom and bust cycles, like any other market. So when the price of that permit which represents one ton of CO2 equivalent, equivalent being the different greenhouse gases weighted against a carbon dioxide molecule. Um, when that price is high, what we see is that, um, you know, there's not a lot of buying going on um, or, the, you know, or there may be a lot of, uh, you know, movement in the market, but when the price is low, many of the corporations will buy them up 
sit and bank them and they can bank them onto, you know, the, the next, um, the next time period towards the future when the prices go high. So, and we see also, we've seen a lot of fraud in the cap and trade systems whereby the, the permits are not retired. So the corporations will buy the permits and rather than retiring them, they'll, they'll pass them on or sell them on again. Um, uh, and, and that's hugely problematic or they'll buy them when they're, they're low priced and then sell them high when the market fall, comes up and they earn a profit off of them. So, so what we've seen like with Shell, for example, Shell has its own you know, entire unit that, that functions to, to make sure that, um, you know, that it can earn a profit off of this. But importantly, I wanna add that all cap and trade systems have some type of carbon offset um, mechanism that goes along with it. Now the offsets, the offset credits, these are not permits, these are credits, sort of burst that bubble. And corporations, you know, like in the California cap and trade system, if they want to pollute even more, they can then buy carbon offsets. And carbon offsets are projects that are happening somewhere else for something else, often land-based, sometimes fuel switching, they can be a whole myriad of, of different types of projects or programs that are supposedly reducing emissions. And there are so many problems with carbon offsets. For example, one of the key issues here is that when we're talking about forest offsets or soil offsets or any other type of land-based offset or ocean offset, there's an equivalency that's given between fossil fuels which are safely in the ground you know that represent this slow carbon cycle or this this safely locked in carbon cycle that's not impacting the fast cycle in the atmosphere biosphere between the the land and the the ocean and the clouds and, and the atmosphere and you know we're a part of that fast cycle and and it's taken the earth you know millions of years to, to really create a type of a balance that, that keeps life as we understand it in balance. And, and that fast carbon cycle is in balance, but when we burn the locked in fossil fuels, it disrupts that balance and it accumulates. And we know that it disrupts it because otherwise we wouldn't have climate change. So my point here being is that there's not an equivalent, you know, the, the earth is not this endless sponge to absorb fossil fuel emissions and it can't. And even the IPCC has said that we're starting to reach saturation point, take hundreds, maybe, you know, it would take thousands of years for the earth to be able to balance out the emissions that are already accumulated in the atmosphere. So so there's not an equivalent. You can't plant trees and say that that's an offset to fossil fuel emissions because it doesn't work that way because they're not the same thing. One is from a different cycle that is locked into the earth and the other one is something that already, you know, is, is already part of that living system. So 
it's kind of a long explanation to say that when carbon offsets are put into the cap and trade system, it really bursts that bubble, both in economic terms, but also in terms of how we understand the complexities of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is a, a great point. And I think the also the issue of the financialization of nature is something that we want to delve into in just a little bit. But maybe to take one step back for our listeners, could you just briefly explain what the difference or what carbon taxation is in comparison to carbon trade? And maybe also um, you can give some example in what countries uh, carbon taxes already exist and where maybe carbon trading is, is operational. So by 2005, the global north, um, some countries in the global north, like the EU and, and Japan and a, f- and a handful of others, uh, New Zealand, had set up their ETS systems. Um, and of course, under Kyoto, um, there, there's something called common but differentiated responsibilities, meaning there was a recognition that countries in the global north were the only ones that were responsible or historically responsible for causing climate change, which is true. It's perhaps one of the, you know, the, the guiding lights of the, of the Kyoto era. Um, and the clean development mechanism was set up to be run underneath the United Nations and the World Bank, but only in the global south where the credits would be issued, the, car- the carbon offsets, to be sold to the, pro- the programs in the global north as offsets for their ETS systems or their cap and trade systems. So these were the early days. This was set up in 2005. And we predicted very early on that these markets would become saturated with permits and credits. And that would drive down a bust cycle in economic terms and, and make these credits and permits almost worthless. And that's exactly what happened. So there was this massive crisis, you know, by... By 2012, the EU ETS system had the market crashed to about a third of its value. And the EU recognized by 2013 that about there was about 2.1 billion surplus permits still floating around in the market that shouldn't be there. So, I mean, and 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 we had said this really early on that this this was something that would happen. So the state then stepped in, like it always does when you know capitalist economics fail, and just and created a backloading program um, by 2015 and just pulled those out. And they eliminated an excess permit from somewhere between 2.5 billion to 1.78 billion. Today the price is, has lifted up you know, because of the backloading program. But again, we have to ask ourselves, like, you know, we hear, we hear from a lot of proponents, like if we just let the, the, the market figure itself out or the hidden hand of the market, um, this will, this will self-regulate, et cetera. But, you know, no capitalist markets really functions that way. It's always the state that steps in to try to fix it. And, and this is one of the great flaws that we see and, and financializing something like pollution. If we're even really, we're not, you know, we're, we're creating a proxy for pollution. The pollution's not actually going anywhere, right? And, and the same thing happened with the CDM. Now hang on with me for a second because I'm about to get to taxes. So 
with the clean development mechanism or the CDM, we saw the same thing happen that by, um, by about 2013, the price of carbon credits came, went, you know, they took a nosedive to almost zero. They were almost worthless. And, and of course, you know, the big multinational corporations bought them out up when they were cheap. Um, but, but again, that means that the pollution essentially the, you know, what, what economics is telling us is that it's worthless, you know, and what, like, what kind of a message is that when we're dealing with a climate emergency? So what's interesting here is that the World Bank and a handful of leaders met that year in 2013, and they kind of scratched their heads and said, what are we going to do? Uh, so rather than admitting defeat and saying, yeah, we need to keep fossil fuels in the ground. This is serious. Let's start, you know, let's say this was an interesting you know, 15 year experiment that didn't work. Let's come up with another plan. Instead, they said, let's wrap this up and create a bigger, bigger market that's more robust. And what's happened since then um, is they included, you know, folding in carbon taxes into these programs and a, a, a massive push for, for putting carbon taxes into the in, into this underneath the umbrella term of carbon pricing. So carbon pricing essentially means, um, you know, voluntary, more voluntary markets, more carbon taxes folded into the compliance markets with the red schemes, red being reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. And I'm going to talk a little bit about some of my research in Colombia around what's called nested red with a carbon tax scheme underneath a, a greenhouse gas emissions program. <laughs> nested red in a carbon tax scheme. Um, we can see this in a few different countries, but one of the most, you know, Schemes that is that has come online and advanced really fast in the last sort of six years is you can see in Colombia. Um, Colombia has created a greenhouse gas um, uh, inventory system, and, and after that, in about 2016, passed a carbon tax. Um, and the carbon tax um, taxes different types of fuels. When they're used, but what what we've seen in in, a, in one specific case study is that uh, coal corporations, um, coal mining corporations, and these are the biggest um, open pit coal mines in the Western Hemisphere. They impact indigenous Wayu people um, in La Guajira, and they impact. They have massive impacts on Afro-Colombian communities and Cesar through displacement, dispossession. Um, water, um, water contamination, water scarcity, uh, uh, food scarcity issues, and a whole host of human rights violations that have been tracked. And these coal, some of the coal corporations are in on the scheme. And so rather than paying the carbon tax for the emissions from their, their vehicles um, that are used in the coal mines, they can then instead buy into a red scheme or reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation system, uh, scheme on the other side of the country 
um, that impacts Afro-Colombian communities on the Pacific coast. And they can say, we will pay money um, to this community or, or this project to, um, you know, not deforest um, anymore there. And by paying through the system, we then, they only have to pay a third of the carbon tax that they would normally pay. And so they get a tax break essentially through doing, through, through doing this program. But what we've seen also, other researchers on the Pacific coast have seen that of course it's not the Afro-Columbian communities that are causing deforestation, but rather um, logging companies and different gangs that are involved. And it's actually, you know, throughout the world with red programs, we see how these programs drive up the price of land. They cause dispossession. We've seen examples of armed dispossession in parts of Africa. We've seen um, indigenous communities massively impacted by red programs um, and these types of forest offset programs. And so, you know, lumping this all underneath, you know, a carbon pricing system that's deeply flawed and deeply re replicates a colonialist system of land grabbing is very far from addressing, you know, going all the way back to 1992 of addressing the development problems of dispossession. But what we see is a replication of development, um, of, of, of development, of the, the development paradigm, really. And we see a replication of that inside of the architecture of carbon pricing. We see a replication of of big oil and gas industries and coal industries using these programs to continue extractivism throughout the world and, and making a profit off of something that the rest of us are being told is supposed to be addressing the climate emergency and we do not have time. This has been a massive fail. And as we go towards, you know, the, the Paris Agreement being finalized in Article 6, which is the carbon pricing element, you know, or the, the architecture of the carbon pricing piece that's being hashed out right now in, in the Paris Agreement. We see these programs being replicated. For example, the clean development mechanism is now going to be under the Paris Agreement called the sustainable development mechanism. And the sustainable development mechanism will function similarly, but you know, sitting on, on some of observing some of the UN meetings, you know, many parties have made it very clear that they have said that they will make sure that this is um, geared towards the private sector. At the same time, we have voluntary markets outside of the compliance markets. That's just like Joe down the street setting up his carbon offset business. And get you know, and, and starting to sort of buy and sell and trade on the market and getting some programs in, um, and and you know, getting these into what some of the proponents will say. Oh, but they're you know, we have our, our gold standards and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But these are unregulated markets, and even that doesn't matter because we go back to the main flaws of what land-based offsets are, you know. We're talking about different carbon cycles um, and ultimately buying and selling and trading the sky and the earth and the land um, is, not, is not the answer. 
we can't, we can't financialize that. We can't put a price on it in monetary terms and capitalize it and say that we're dealing with something that ultimately allows for the biggest polluting industries in the world, the ones that are responsible for climate change, to continue a process that delays us and distracts us from really what needs to happen. And that's keeping fossil fuels in the ground full stop. Definitely, Tamara. So if I can just pick out some of the key things that I understood from, from what you were just saying about trading systems, as well as taxes and, and how they don't work. So um, nature and people's lives are being exchanged for profit. Um, often there's too many credits or uh, too many permits that are, that are issued. So we have the surplus situation. So the prices of these, of these permits nosedive. And so, um, polluting industries can continue without really paying the price. Then we have all these offsetting, uh, programs that really allow us again to exchange, um, nature and and expand the 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 number of uh the amount of trading that can happen and um taxes often get or have been folded into these trading systems allowing allowing um companies to get out of really paying taxes is that is that a yeah i'm wondering whether there are any other sort of specific points i should pull out yeah, there's a couple of pieces here that's that I, I you know I, I didn't get into. One thing I want to mention is that you know since since that sort of shift that I mentioned in 2012, 2013, um, and as you know, Paris Agreement was agreed in 2015, but you know not ratified yet, and the architecture hasn't been built, and, and most of it's ready and or there, we're close. Um, but, but again, the Paris Agreement is a, is a replication uh, and, and much of what's in there is around the, you know, the carbon pricing systems. Today, we have 64 carbon pricing instruments. Um, three, well, there may be between 64 and 67 that are operating in the world. And those carbon pricing systems, some of them have taxes embedded in them, right? Um, I also want to mention that between 2015 and now, you know, at, at sort of like waiting for the architecture um, and Article 6 to be agreed upon, a lot of the corporations took it, have taken it upon themselves to just start growing the voluntary market outside of the compliance markets. So we've seen a massive demand for carbon credits um, increasingly. Um, uh, and they continue to grow in the last years as well. And in addition to that, the response has been corporate commitments to so-called net zero emissions targets. So we see companies like Microsoft and Amazon, a lot of the, the, the airlines and big multinationals saying, and, and we're going to be net zero by 2050, or we're going to do this pledge. But in order for them to get to net zero, they buy offsets. So the net in the net zero is not, is not zero emissions. The net means that they buy offsets through the voluntary markets 
that are, you know, really not regulated. And then they can sort of subtract those on their balance sheet to zero and say that they're net zero. Now, the public um, often just assumes that that means that it's green and that it's okay and carbon neutral, but, but that's not what's happening here. So there's, uh, I'm, we'll see this as well um, in the lead up to Glasgow that, and, and in Glasgow, that there's this task force for ramping up um, net zero commitments and um, for ramping up the voluntary markets. Um, and we've seen, you know, I think it was 2019 that there's a dominance in the voluntary market um, that, you know, that really quickly rose. So, so these are some of the other things that we're seeing um, building quite, quite quickly. And I, I just wanted to mention that. Those, those things as well. The other part that we're looking at um, um, is, is, you know, underneath the umbrella of net zero emissions, um, the offsets are coming in two major forms. One is what's called nature-based solutions. Um, and nature-based solutions is just a, a new sort of fancy term to include soil offsets, uh, land-based offsets like forest offsets, agriculture offsets, so-called climate-smart agriculture, um, ocean offsets, and 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 again, you know that argument about these are this is a different carbon cycle, and you can't, you know, you can't you can't just plant a tree and say that that's going to undo the violence of, of fossil fuel extraction. I'm just wondering at this point, it might be even a silly question, but are there any, do you see any redeeming qualities to these programs at all? Well, no, I, I think that these programs are a real distraction from the hard work that we need to be doing and make no mistake about it. Many communities around the world are already doing that hard work. You know, 80% of the biodiversity in the on the planet is in indigenous people's territories. And without that, I think that we already would have seen a massive planet collapse. So, so shoring up um, and listening and, 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 and following the leadership of indigenous peoples that are doing the hard work, this is hard work. You know, that, that, that biodiversity exists not because they're, they're doing nothing with it, but because there are there is indigenous traditional knowledge that goes back for for thousands of years um, that understands how to live and do that work, that labor that hard work and and ultimately the UN is not listening to that we are not listening to that um, and there's a there's a schism and a divide in in an understanding between you know call it the colonized part of the world or, or modernity and an indigenous traditional knowledge. And until that is shifted, we will continue to see programs like these under these capitalist patriarchal colonialist schemes that are way, way, way off of what we need to be seeing. So no, I don't see a carbon pricing being redeemable or fixable or tweakable um, I see it as a massive distraction. And, you know, 
we've been watching this unfold. Many of us have been watching this unfold for two and a half decades. They've had enough time to try to make it work. Um, it, it's not, it, it's time to, to, to shift gears now because we don't have time for this. We don't have time for um, these, for techno fixes like geoengineering or for ramping up more carbon pricing and adding more, you know, taxation schemes or nested schemes or, or folding in different schemes that are fundamentally flawed. Um, what we need is, you know, honestly, I would say the number one place to start here besides listening to indigenous leadership um, and embracing indigenous traditional knowledge is, is, is fossil fuel subsidies um, pulled across the board, across the world. Um, fossil fuel corporations should not be subsidized. And, you know, the IMF estimated a few years ago that fossil fuel subsidies earn something like 3.5 trillion, you know, dollars to continue extracting in various forms of subsidies. And that's really, you know, a starting place. We shouldn't be talking about carbon taxes when fossil fuel subsidy, fossil fuel corporations are subsidized, you know, by public funds and, and other types of investment funds. Yeah, I'm very curious to hear if you could speak a little bit despite these, I think, uh, yeah, fairly obvious failures of, of these market logic driven um, systems. Like, could you speak a little bit to like why like carbon pricing still has become such a prominent uh, or like such a focus of climate politics and what role corporations maybe have had in this? Well, you know, even back in the 1990s, you know, Royal Dutch Shell and, and BP were, they weren't just at the table. They had a hand in, in building the markets um, and they've been in the game all the way along. Um, and and in, in that, you know, having a having hand in building the architecture for it, you know, they 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 found ways to make money off of it and to delay and distract so that they can continue extracting. So their business model in many ways depends on this. It depends on carbon pricing. So if you have the most powerful corporations in the world that are benefiting from a system like carbon pricing, of course they're going to say that it's effective because they, they have to have it in order to continue extracting. Um, it's also so built up now. There are so many corporations in the voluntary markets and the compliance markets that depend on, you know, that depend on this going. I think, I think there's also a lot of ego involved, you know, admitting defeat <laughs> in a patriot, you know, patriarchy doesn't really allow for that in many ways. And, you know, this is very much ran by a, a very sort of patriarchal business sort of bro system um, as well. And they're, they're not ready to admit defeat. And they make money, you know, especially the, the carbon offsetters and the brokers and the carbon managers, you know, um, a lot of the conservation NGOs, uh, you know, make, make a lot of money off of this. So, uh, you know, many of the conservation NGOs 
a huge part of their their income is from setting up and managing offset programs. So they now have it's it's become a dependency model for some. Considering that our podcast is particularly focused on Shell, I was curious if you could tell a little bit, uh, yeah, speak a little bit to the relationship of Shell to carbon pricing and if you would be able to give some examples how uh, Shell has also profited from carbon pricing. Yeah. So as I mentioned, Shell's been in the game for decades. You know, they're one of the original architects and pushers. Um, you know, they have an entire trading system, um, you know, where they even trade with themselves, you know, with some of their corporations and subsidiaries in the global south who are in the CDM, you know, they'll even buy credits from their own subsidiaries in the global, you know, and and a lot of a lot of a lot of activities are are questionable. I will say, but most recently, Shell has also followed the trend, or or you know, been an original um, uh, pusher for this net zero emissions targets, and and they made a net zero plan for 2050, like many of the other multinational corporations, and um, that I mentioned earlier, it includes all of these false solutions, uh, false solutions like like the like the ag and soil offsets that I mentioned. And you know, they've been involved in, in, in you know, all of the false solutions inside of the clean development mechanism and, and since day one. But most recently, you know, they, they've sort of started to double down and focus on what are called nature-based solutions. And nature-based solutions is a term that includes you know pretty much any of the land-based um, and, and ocean-based offsets. So carbon farming, um, carbon smart agriculture, soil offsets, uh, forest offsets, all of it. But in, in about 2019, um, Royal Dutch Shell invested $300 million into projects through its nature-based solutions unit. Um, and, and that's not a lot of money for them. Let's be clear. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's not a lot, um, but it was really to basically jumpstart their NBS or nature-based solutions unit. One example um, of, of a project that they acquired is called um, it's Australia's select carbon and they do car so-called quote unquote carbon farming and there are quote unquote carbon farming specialists. Most of that's around cattle ranching in Australia. Um, select carbon currently or, or, or they were running about 70 projects covering about 9 million hectares. Now that is a lot of land. Um, and how that works is as the, the carbon, the, they sell the credits in the Australian Carbon Credits Unit, um, or, the, or the as or as an Australian Carbon Credit Unit, or the ACCU. This is in the Voluntary Emissions Reduction Fund market. Okay, so they sell those in the voluntary markets, and and Shell then you know can sell those offsets from their their new acquired cattle ranching from tweaking the cattle ranching a little bit, doing a little bit of different land practices. Um, or, or, you know, 
deal, managing the cattle in, in slightly different ways to say that they're reducing emissions. They can sell those then into the voluntary market, um, as well as um, you know using it in what you know what they call the sort of green tariffs programs, like to electricity cu customers, much like in the UK and the Netherlands. Um, and, and customers can then say, yeah, I want green electricity and tick a box. And, and then some of that money, um, that, you know, will, will be, um, funneled back into the, the nature-based solutions unit. But we have a lot of questions. A, we understand that this, you know, that these are different carbon, um, cycles and that fundamentally this is a flawed idea. But secondly, we have a lot of questions about land grabbing and land dispossession. I have, I have a lot of questions about why they're choosing certain lands to buy up um, uh, and, and manage. And is there oil underneath these lands? Um, and, and also, you know, who and, and, and how is this impacting, you know, different communities, uh, be they Aboriginal communities or, or other communities near these 9 million hectares and these other chunks of land. Um, and, and again, you know, this is the sort of precursor to something that could go on for years under NBS. There is a recent um, sign-on letter that's going around that's being initiated, that was initiated from the World Rainforest Movement, um, the Indigenous Environmental Network, um, the Indigenous Climate Action and a few others around the world who are calling out nature-based solutions as nature-based dispossession um, and, and really calling the UN um, and other development agencies to stop this um, before it, it grows any bigger. And Shell has been absolutely at the forefront of pushing this. Thanks, Tamara. Do you have any, any examples of places that uh, land grabbing has taken place as part of these nature-based solutions? You know, a lot of that research is happening now. Um, but again, because it's sort of folded into the red model or similar in some ways to a red model, um, you know, we can look at red projects as, as, an, as examples of, of how this has functioned. Um, and how you know carbon or forest offsets as well. I mentioned earlier that eighty percent of the world's biodiversity is in um, or you know indigenous peoples' territories, and that makes indigenous peoples targets for you know for the carbon managers and the carbon brokers, and and uh, you know with indigenous peoples being targeted we've seen all kinds of dodgy things we've seen here in the united states for example or in turtle island um, we've seen um, neighboring communities uh you know being bribed we've seen examples of 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 uh, carbon managers sneaking into indigenous peoples territories to measure their trees without permission We've seen horrific examples of, of non-consensual agreements um, being pushed on tribes that, and, and tribal governments without um, you know, full membership being involved, sneakily getting this onto agendas, um, 
and then saying that they're not on agendas and then they come onto tribal agendas and they get pushed without uh, free prior and informed consent. We've seen, um, you know, communities not being told everything that they need to know about where the credits are going, who the credits are going to be bought by and, and who, you know, who the credits are being sold to. So many communities are just completely unaware that the credits are being sold on to polluting industries that impact other indigenous communities elsewhere. They're not, they're not given the full amount of information. And this is a violation of, of, of indigenous rights underneath the United Nations. And it's not being investigated enough at all. Um, so those are just a few examples. And if we look at that as, you know, the as the sort of model, and, and they're, they're slightly different. The models are slightly different. I'm not saying that red is the same, but it's very similar um, in terms of how land grabbing and other ways are working. But because there's been so much pushback by indigenous organizations, you know, the nature-based solutions, um, you know, uh, scheme in many ways is, is, uh, is a, is a way to distract from red and do something else, you know, it's sort of like a rebranding, um, in order to, and, and, and an expansion into, uh, farming, um, soils and ag as well. Um, so, yeah, and, and, you know, we have a lot of communities that reach out to us, including in Ecuador and, and Colombia and then Brazil and other places and, and, and um, you know, who are, who are impacted by not getting enough information um, from a lot of the carbon brokers that are out there, um, you know, that are trying to get access to lands and territories that they just should not be on to begin with. Again, and also these are standing, these are standing forests. These are ancient forests. They have real meaning beyond just the carbon that's in the, the trees. This, these are, this is, this is, it goes much deeper um, into, you know, other forms of knowledge. Um, and, and, um, and they, they're protected and worked with and lived with in, in ways that, that are complex um, and different types of knowledges that, that they're, they're, not, they're not going, indigenous peoples are not the drivers of deforestation and they certainly shouldn't be the ones targeted. If we really want, if we're really serious about protecting biodiversity and forests, then Indigenous peoples are not are not the problem, or that they shouldn't be. That doesn't make any sense. Then go and target, you know, big ag and big pharma and big logging corporations. You know, those are the drivers of deforestation. Certainly not indigenous peoples. Yeah, thank you, Tamara. I I really appreciate your analysis that really um, takes into account social justice issues, because uh, I feel personally so often when we talk about the climate crisis, it's being reduced to this issue of reducing CO2. So yeah, really thank you for bringing in that perspective. Could you tell us a bit more about how you think carbon pricing programs might affect communities differently? Certainly, if we look at the communities that are most impacted by climate change, 
And, and if we look at the communities most impacted by carbon pricing programs, like offset programs, we definitely see that, that the, the colonial capitalist racism is, is alive and well in impacting those communities, first and foremost. So in the United States, no question, communities of color, Black, Indigenous, and communities of color are impacted first and most. And we've known that for decades, but it's this double impact because it's not just, you know, living next to oil refineries and, and, and fracking and gas. Um, it's, it's also the social implications that come along with that. Like, um, you know, we have a campaign on missing and murdered Indigenous women and Indigenous peoples because Next to the fracking and the and the oil industry, man camps are set up because they need laborers, right? And and they're far away from the laborers come, they're far away from their families, they drink, and and there are these these other social implications. Um, and and indigenous women um, go missing something like eight times more than than any other women in this country, um, and are never found. Um, the, the social implications and the racism that it's connected to extractive industries is, is really around direct violence. It's around cultural violence. It's around social violence, um, um, indirect violence as well. And, and this is perpetuated through programs like carbon pricing that continue to keep the wheels on capitalism inside of this racist colonial system that pretends to address climate change, but ultimately masks the fact that it allows the, the indirect cultural and, and direct violence to continue unabated. Thank you, Tamara. Switching back the focus to Shell, I was wondering, considering that carbon pricing schemes are not yet operational on a global scale, what are the chances that we can actually change the business of a multinational corporation such as Shell with so many subsidiaries all over the world through carbon pricing? Well, in many ways, you know, carbon pricing is operating in, in globally. Like I mentioned earlier, there's over 65 operating carbon pricing initiatives in different countries around the world. That's a lot, you know, and this is due to be ramped up even more um, and Shell, again, is very much behind it. So it, oh, part of their business model relies on um, the guarantee that they can continue extracting um, and, and claiming that they're, they're, you know, that they're the ones doing good um, through, through, the, through the trading and, the, and the, the expansion of, of nature-based solutions and net zero emissions targets and all of it. But ultimately, again, you know, this isn't this isn't the solution. This isn't the way forward. The way forward is to keep fossil fuels in the ground. Even the IPCC has admitted that um, very clearly. That it is like this. This is the moment in history. We have a choice right now. We can continue how we're going with carbon pricing systems as the you know as the as the, as the beacon in the way that we follow and watch the world, watch the earth continue to collapse, or we can go a different way 
and we can start keeping fossil fuels in the ground, ramping down these industries and using the fossil fuel subsidies, the trillions of dollars, and start to you know, invest in just transition, start to invest in you know, pushing that money into communities of color um, and, and communities around the world in the global south that desperately need it. And not in big mega development projects, but in small scale stuff like um, you know, things that communities really need to survive, um, especially communities impacted by hurricanes and wildfires and, and all of the other impacts. And yes, there are adaptation programs in, inside the UN, and some of them are doing some good things. But many of the other ones, again, are being you know, touted underneath these same types of development, um, this, this type of development regime that perpetuates the same type of colonial capitalist systems in the global South that, that continue pulling us in the wrong direction. So once again, I will say, you know, we have to address um, that we have to just admit that carbon pricing has not functioned. It's not functioning. It has not reduced emissions and it's been over two decades. We do not have time you know, to, to wait and see if this experiment can work anymore. Those of us that oppose it, you know, we, we've done rigorous analysis and, and robust research and many different frameworks to see how these types of programs are fundamentally flawed. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, so I'm curious if we stop carbon pricing mechanisms um if we stop subsidies you know and invest in indigenous communities and uh, like local local by poc communities especially those who have been impacted by fossil fuel production is that enough to get to a future beyond shell to get to a future beyond fossil fuel companies you know, I, I'm wondering, Chama, what your perspective on that is. You know, what what is that enough? I think that I, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> I don't know if that's enough. I think I think we need to see also a paradigm shift and, and a real effort towards building global solidarity as well. I think there was a moment in the late 90s, early 2000s, where we really saw um, a, lot of, a lot of conversations around global solidarity building and what that would look like. Um, and, and I think we need something similar again. This has to be people-led. This has to be led by the grassroots because you know, even right now in the United States, uh, what I've been seeing in real time, you know, is that when when the leadership is, you know, not heard from from the from the frontline communities, from the people on the front lines, from the black and indigenous and people of color and underserved and, and low-income communities, when their voices are not foregrounded and, and taken very seriously in terms of solutions and where to where this needs to move, then the, 
you know, the frameworks are set up that, that are, that don't include them. They become different frameworks and those frameworks continue really rapidly without them. And even if then the voices or, and the people are, are, they become used and exploited to try to fix those frameworks that exclude them. And that is not the way. So I don't, I can't say, you know, what is going to happen. I just know for certain that, that there are incredible communities in the world that are doing so much work already, you know, from La Via Campesina to indigenous communities who are doing the hard work um, on their and their territories, um, to to some of the most inspiring organizations around the world, you know, that support communities that have real answers and solutions, and other organizations that that are coming up with 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 interesting and and creative ways to degrow the economy, to degrow the capitalist economy. Um, there are real solutions, but these are not these are not the ones that are heard at the UN, and these are not the systems that are being rolled out. And I don't think we need to ask why. You know, this is a question of power, um, ultimately, and and the power and the the development, whether we're talking about the development paradigm or the multinational corporation, uh, you know. Power over, you know, inside of a neoliberal capitalist system, there is a lot of power and money at stake. And those businesses, those corporations are going to, you know, do what they can to, to maintain that power and keep fossil fuels coming out of the ground. And, you know, until they absolutely you know, are stopped, carbon pricing ensures that that extract, extractivism continues. Thanks so much for all your insights on the pitfalls of carbon pricing, Tamara, and specifically its impacts on indigenous and colonized communities. I don't think that this can be understated. And we also appreciate your input on how the power of corporations you know, plays into shaping our decisions about what climate strategies we choose to pursue. To our listeners, IEN has a lot of cool actions going on during the COP26 in Glasgow right now. Tamara shared these with us, and we want to share these with you so you can support. You can find petitions at www.ienearth.org, calling out net zero goals as missing the target and calling out nature-based solutions as false solutions. We will post these in the show notes, so make sure you sign on to those letters. Also, IEN is collaborating with other organizations to broadcast daily on radio and via podcast from actions and events at the COP, giving a platform to indigenous voices there. So check out their website for their podcast and radio channel, Indigenous Rising, and support by listening and sharing. With this, we have reached the end of today's episode. For more information on carbon pricing, please check out our show notes, including a glossary of the most important tools we've discussed today and several links to reports that we considered relevant in our research for this episode. If you like the show, please follow and like us on your podcast platform and join us for our next episode. 
You can learn more about A Future Beyond Shell at futurebeyondshell.org and sign up for our newsletter. See you next time.